You are listening to episode 74 of the NASA in Silicon Valley podcast. This is Frank Tavares and Abby Taylor introducing you to our 2017 end of year clip show. 2017 has been quite a year, but it's finally winding down to a close. To cap things off, we wanted to look back at some of the highlights from the past year and give a good overview to all of the listeners we've picked up recently of all the different things happening here at NASA's Ames Research Center here in Silicon Valley. Yeah, so we've picked out clips from our favorite episodes over the last year. Uh, But if any of these strike your fancy, remember that the full episodes are there to listen to as well. They're perfect for tuning in on a long road trip with the family or a flight home for the holidays. Sounds like we've got a great episode lined up. As usual, reach out to us on our social media platforms using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. Let's jump on in. For our first conversation from 2017, we have a favorite subject for the public and for us here at NASA, too, that is the hunt for exoplanets. The Kepler Space Telescope has discovered many, many planets orbiting stars other than our own sun. In this conversation, here is Natalie Battaglia, Kepler science guru here at NASA Ames, and incidentally, one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People of the Year, explaining to us what Kepler is all about and how it works. What is Kepler? For anybody who has no clue, they're listening for the first time. (laughs) Well, it's a space telescope. Um, We call it a photometer, photometer. Photo is light, meter is to measure. So you're measuring light. But with a space telescope, you're using a mirror to collect a bunch of photons, and you focus those photons onto a detector that turns the photons into a voltage and you measure mm-hmm. that as a number it tells you about the brightness um, but Kepler is NASA's was NASA's first mission capable of detecting an earth-sized planet moreover a potentially habitable earth-sized yeah. planet so it was a piece of technology that was launched that that was really new it allowed us to look at the universe in a different way and as a result you know whenever you put a new piece of technology into space or you build a new piece of technology to look at things in a new way you're going to learn a lot yeah even more than you perhaps set out to learn. And certainly that's what Kepler did. So so the way that Kepler finds these planets is to measure the brightnesses of many stars simultaneously. And by many, I mean on the order of 200,000, 150 mm-hmm. to 200,000 stars, taking a brightness measurement simultaneously of all of these stars once every 30 minutes without blinking basically for four years. Like taking in a ton of data. Yeah, it is a lot of data. That's right. Um, And and so what you're looking for in these brightness measurements every 30 minutes is a momentary diminution of light that occurs if a planet eclipses its star. Now, that's not going to happen for all planets that are out there because it requires a certain geometry, right? Yeah. The, The orbit has to be inclined exactly right so that the planet in its orbit about the star casts a shadow that sweeps across the telescope perfectly. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. And telescope will per- perceive that shadow as a momentary dimming of light. So that's how we infer the existence of these planets. And that's what Kepler set out to do. Yeah. And I think I remember hearing you talk one time about like, if you hold your palm in the night sky, you like, like hold it up. That's kind of like yeah. Gives people an idea of the spot yeah, you're we're looking su- into the sky. We're surveying a slice of the galaxy. So we're not looking over the whole entire sky. Yeah. We're looking at about a, a handprint on the sky, which is 100 square degrees, 10 by 10. And we're looking out about 3,000 light years along the spiral arm of our galaxy. And even thinking of like the science that you get from a space telescope like this, it's like you're 
bringing in so much data. NASA's looking at that data. The scientific community is looking at this data. I'd imagine that it's like after you've brought this stuff in and shared it, then it's like the the actual results and papers that come off of this like then happen down that line. And so even after you know, long after the mission's over, you'll probably still have papers coming. Absolutely. Because when people finally get the time to like dig through it all. Oh yeah, absolutely. It takes, there's a latency yeah. between the time you collect the data and the time that you, that it comes to fruition. And so the number of publications has gradually been ramping up year after year. And I expect even after we turn off the lights and go home, it will continue to ramp up, maybe even for another 10 years or so. There's a lot of information there yet to be gleaned. So it's like the biggest results may still be still be yet to come. That's true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, it's just fascinating because even I mean, even sure, I'm sure for you for like your career, it's like you come in like you know looking at the stars, studying the stuff, and like the books that you learned on the textbooks have literally been rewritten. Yeah, that's true. To match the stuff that you found. Yes, it's like it's, that's just literally. I mean, we've been asked for figures for new textbooks. <laughs> that's right, <laughs> and that happened really quickly because yeah. it was. Uh, the the change in knowledge was dramatic and quite quick. It was literally like a veil being removed, you know, lifted from your eyes uh, as we w- revealed the small mm-hmm. planets that populate the galaxy that we couldn't see before. Yeah, I mean, I think in, even in some of the more recent, you know, you think of the Trappist announcement and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I, I remember listening to you talk one time, and it was the idea that, like, every star, you know, you see in the night sky very likely has at least one planet. Yeah, every sun-like star, yeah, on average has at least one planet. That's what we've learned from Kepler. You may have heard about the solar eclipse this August 21st going across the continental United States. The live stream of that was actually the most viewed NASA event ever. It was really amazing to see a scientific phenomenon take the nation by storm like that. On the podcast, we had heliophysicist Lika Guhartha-Kurta prepare us for the event by giving us some scientific background and telling us why she was so excited. Let's listen to what she had to say. For somebody who's been studying this, what is, like, you have to be feeling super hyped. And you also have to, like, be really excited as it builds into. But, like, kind of what's going through your mind and what are you preparing for? What are you looking at as you get ready for this huge eclipse that's going to cover the entire United States? I don't know that there is any (laughs) one word or sentence that really captures my sentiments. I mean, I am in this hyped state, (laughs) and I think it will remain sustained uh, for the duration. What is um, absolutely joyful is that, and it's, it's almost close to a month before, that I am seeing that the uh, country, the reporters, are getting engaged in communicating this. This is um, such a potential moment, I would say. I mean, I'm going to use big words because that's how I feel. And, you know, you can't predict these things, but that's how I feel. It's it's an event of history. Absolutely. Where the entire population of America, including Hawaii and Alaska, can view partial solar eclipse. You don't have to do anything. You just need protective glasses and you can be wherever you are and look up at the sky. The only thing that will prevent you from seeing this is directly looking at the skies if you don't have protective eye cover. But even then you can project it, right, and see it. 
But the other thing is, you know, if it's cloud cover. Yeah. So, but otherwise, everyone, everyone, wherever you are, you can absorb this. And then people who are on those 14 states, about 70 miles wide, the special uh, path called the path of totality, uh, that is a transformative moment. And I kid you not, I'm a scientist, you know, (laughs) I mean, keep that in mind. And I'm a solar scientist at that. But nothing takes away from when you actually look at the eclipse, the corona, the shimmering, pearly halo, breathing. You know, it's dynamic. You can see the sometimes the post flare loops, the, the yeah. structures move. You're seeing this with your naked eyes. You're seeing the outer atmosphere of the sun. And we live in that atmosphere. Yeah. We don't think about it. But you, when you see it, yeah. somehow you begin to sense that. And and so for me, you know, if human beings understand that, there are so many greater things we could do together. Wow. Yeah. It, it reminds me of um, a lot of people from Ames are going to be over in uh, in Oregon. Um, in fact, you're going to be heading up to Oregon as well to watch this. Um, NASA TV is doing a huge production that'll last um, throughout the duration of, of like the totality at different locations throughout the day. But we have this drawing up on our whiteboard in our office where it's like it has like the, it says I think like an eighty percent of eclipse, and it was kind of like making that that emphasis of yeah, the total eclipse will be up in Oregon. But we're still going to get like 80%. And it was like still really cool. So for the folks who are not necessarily in the path of the totality, you're still going to get quite the show. Imagine most people have never seen an eclipse sun, whether yeah. partial or total. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is this is such a cosmic coincidence. And, and, you know, with the population that we have in the country, with the technology, I mean, this happened. Mm-hmm. 99 years ago. But think of our knowledge base today. Yeah. Think of social media. Think of all the technology, you know, all the apps, the cameras, the lens, uh, the kind of observations we are going to be able to take. I'm not even talking about the science, science observations which NASA will be doing, you know, from our operating spacecraft from ground, from airplanes, from balloons. I mean, you name it and we are doing it, right? But then there's the other side. There are animals, right? You can actually do animal uh, behavior. There'll be uh, cameras in zoos. You know, animals respond to the uh, change in ambient life. You know, social behavior, psychological behavior. Uh, It's really... Uh, quite an incredible moment. In talking about like it being impactful for everybody, one of the coolest things I saw was a project that's coming out of Ames, but it's actually with the the Survey Group um, that we've done podcast interviews with different folks from Survey here before. But talk a little bit about this. It's an actual Braille book about the total eclipse. And so it's basically you know you figure if you're visually impaired. You're not going to be able to see the eclipse, but they create like NASA worked with them to create a book where you could feel it with your hands. And and it's a whole detailed thing of how the totality, how it works, where it's going to go across the United States. So talk a little bit about this. It's really quite amazing. I mean, uh, you know, the steps that NASA will take 
to make this accessible to almost all, even the ones who are visually impaired through tactile sense, mm-hmm. you kind of get that imagination basically of what's happening, what's the phenomenon like. And we have done this for the eclipse, for them to be part of it and understand what's going on. We have done this with other missions mm-hmm. actually. Uh, you know, we, we do it through Braille. Sometimes yeah. we produce music out uh. of the data we collect in the deep uh, space, you know, where we think yes. space is empty yeah. and it's not. And we measure the particles and then we actually give them some uh, tone, tonality, yeah. as opposed to a color. That's mm-hmm. also something we do, right? Like in Hubble images, for example. Yeah. So NASA is really, in that sense, very thoughtful in uh, sort of making what we are doing as accessible to everyone as possible. And I think this is such a cool thing. After the eclipse in September, we had another big moment when the Cassini spacecraft made its final plunge into the planet Saturn. This is a mission that many, many people have been working on for decades. And here the spacecraft goes out in a blaze of glory. I had the chance to talk with three members of the original science team who have been studying Saturn's rings and its moons. I asked them what they think will be the lasting impact of this captivating mission and basically how they'd say farewell. What for you are the the biggest impacts or the ones that really captured your mind? Since you mentioned the rings of Saturn, uh, let me say a few things about what we have learned uh, uh, Saturn's rings are really like a, a vast dynamical laboratory. It's a big, giant particle disk mm-hmm. where the particles interact like molecules in a fluid. So we treat it like a fluid, collisions and such. That's so neat. it's a great way to understand the processes by which our planet formed from the disk of particles and gas that uh, originally surrounded our sun. It's a Uh laboratory for us to study that. All those processes in the rings uh, probably happened in one way or another in uh, our own forming solar system and in other forming solar systems where we see all these thousands of exoplanets. Oh, okay, right. So Saturn tells us about Earth, potentially. Tells us about Earth. beyond. And beyond, no doubt. The other thing we learned was that Saturn's rings are changing before our eyes. This fluid flops around and moves and changes, and uh, we see things colliding and recreating as we watch. That's been uh, fascinating. In fact, the whole origin of Saturn's rings, uh, we think, uh, it's whether they formed in the last couple hundred million years is a hot topic these days. Mm -hmm. That is around the age of the fish on Earth or more recently. Oh, interesting. And there are things uh, that are still being worked, so we can't answer that question right now. There's data being taken right now by Cassini that Mm -hmm. we'll hear about in two weeks, uh, and this work will go on. But this is a very hot subject right now about Saturn's ring. So this whole concept of impermanence and uh, change uh, applied to this vast structure has been something we've really learned very well through Cassini. That's very cool, yeah, because we don't think about the outer solar system transforming yes. and going through exactly. long-term change. Exactly. We, we don't get the chance to see that normally. That's right. Yeah, neat. Well, that's a good takeaway. How about Dale or Chris? Well, my uh, farewell to Cassini would be thank you for the revelations of Titan's liquid methane lakes mm-hmm. and even more so for the 
organic rich geysers on Enceladus because that's given us astrobiologists a, a clear direction on what to do next. So, and we're doing it. Awesome, awesome. We look forward to that next chapter. Clearly, Dan. I see two things. Uh, one is that the things we've been finding with uh, Cassini in the Saturn system um, give us ideas for the use of the uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, oh. which will be an enormously powerful facility to be launched in about two years from now. Right. And the other thing that comes to mind is that uh, Cassini, with so many of the other things that NASA does, is most often the best news you ever get. Mm-hmm. And in a world uh, where the media are jammed with uh, not so good news, almost everything you hear from NASA is good news and stimulating. And I think that this is a, a tremendous gift to not only the American public, but to humanity that uh, NASA has these uh, these lofty goals and has found ways to achieve them. And with a cadre of talented and um, anxious and vigorous young people to carry these missions out, we are often the best news you'll ever get. <laughs> Absolutely right. Couldn't have said it better myself. That's so true. You, you feel that around NASA Ames. Next, we'll hear from Ali Guarenos Luna, engineer and deputy project manager here at Ames. She works on safety systems for CubeSats. Those are small satellites that bring scientific experiments and technology demonstrations into space. One of the projects that she mentions here, TechEdSat and its ExoBreak, recently was launched and deployed from the space station. Let's hear more from her. So what are some like new innovations or engineering things that you've had to well, implement? In the beginning, you know, it was it was completely, you know, try this, try that and, you know, try to see if you satisfy, you know, the safety engineers in the space station. So one one example I can think of is the alley switch, which is the axillary lateral and heaved switch. Okay. So it's named after me. <laughs> it's named Ali. Yes. Because how, how fortuitous. I, it's just it just happened. So we were building this CubeSat, right? And the space station was like, you know, we need to make sure that when you are inside the space station, you don't get turned on and start emitting, you know, from the radios that you have. We had three yeah. radios. And they were really worried because even though it was one unit CubeSat, one unit is 10 by 10 by 10. Okay. So 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters. Uh, they were worried that the three radios that we have, if it happened, something might have happened inside the space station where the satellite turned on, we will be radiating and interference with the communications to ground. Oh, wow. And so you're talking about, you know, the life of the astronaut and having constant communication with ground is very important. Yeah. We had two inhibits in the the food switches in the frame, and they were going to be against the plate of the deployer. So you shouldn't be turned on unless you get, you know, ejected from the deployer. Okay. Right? So, you know, they were like, you know, that is, that is not sufficient because the frequency that you have in your CubeSat is too high, and we need to have a third inhibit. Oh, wow. So where did you put a third inhibit in a <laughs> 10 by 10 by 10 centimeter CubeSat, right? Yeah. After you had already built it, because we already had built it, right? <laughs> so, you know, to satisfy that requirement, we ended up, you know, thinking about, we spent like two, two, two days, you know, thinking between all the engineers and myself. Yeah, 
where do we want to put the the third inhibit, right? Do we want to put it in another food? Do we want to put it in on top of the you know or the opposite side of the yeah. other inhibits? Where, right? And so, from my experience of building amateur rockets, <laughs> okay, because I, you know, I I usually do it on the summer and I go to um, Nevada and launch you know amateur rockets. Okay, sometimes you have switches that they have a leverage so they're compressed and when they come out uh, when you have a payload inside the rocket and they come out the leverage you know it gets lifted and and then the, the payload turns on so the, so the activate lifting flips the switch, switch yeah or, okay and so i was like well we can use something like that but we need a roller because what happened on the frame uh of the deployer you have to be very smooth you don't want to scrapes the deployer right so yeah. it has to be smooth and and so i was like well we can have the same switch but with a roller to so it's to smoother make it, so it, yes to make it friction go, that's yeah. right and not to scrape and so we ended up finding one and then we put it on the side of the frame and one of them and then i was just like well we just we can do it right so we implemented and so my friends the next day we came around you know, to meet and talk about, you know, the frame, you know, the, the inhibit, um, they came out with that acronym, the axillary lateral inhibit, to name it after me. <laughs> nice. And that's what we've been using ever since, actually. Oh, that's awesome. So, so your namesake. Yeah, your namesake. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that's one of the things that I found it really interesting that, you know, you wouldn't think about it, but, you know, it just happens that yeah. you needed to have it and... Just figure it out, find a way to make it work. So what kind of stuff are you working on? Are you looking forward to well, coming this, up? Coming up, we're having another satellite, which is Texas-Sat-5, being deployed from the space station. Okay. And it's going to be the first satellite that is going to be controlled to the orbit. It has an exobrake, which is a cross parachute, if you can yeah. think of. And it has a winch. And we're going to control it from the ground. Actually, the winch. We're going to control the winch to make sure that uh, we can pull in the two uh, two wires that are connected to the exobrake. Okay. So when we are in a certain orbit or altitude, we can change the shape of the exobrake. Okay. And guide the CubeSat to re-enter in the specific area that we want. And this is important. Not survive, but just re-entry. And that's important because normally these are small 10 by 10 by 10 things. This. And normally they burn up in the atmosphere. When that's they, right. When they're done doing their job in orbit, they fall down, they burn up. But you're trying to, like, you want it to survive the re-entry. So using this exobrake to... Well, yeah. It's, well, the, the exobrake is more like a guide to guide the, the CubeSat. Okay. To enter a specific area, like you're trying okay, to, okay. like if you're shooting at something, you know, and you're aiming it at a specific area, so the the exobrake will, you know, will give you that capability, right? Mm-hmm. Usually when CubeSats are in orbit, they just go around the Earth, you know, they do whatever they need to do, whatever experiment it is, and then as they come close to, you know, Earth's altitude, they will burn in, right? And it doesn't, you know, they, it could be anywhere. Okay. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to deploy something from the space station. And then, you know, as he's coming down and going around the earth, actually give him a route where to enter. Where you want to tell it where to control yes. it. Yes, because that that whole aspect to try to maneuver the, the CubeSat, the next step for us is to build something a little bit more bigger. Okay. And actually be able to survive the reentry okay. as we try to guide so- it. First, figure out how to steer it, and then figure out how to make it survive. Survive, yeah, and reentry. 
Like all the best comic books, NASA and Silicon Valley had a crossover episode with Houston We Have a Podcast, the podcast program from Johnson Space Center. We spoke with Dennis Levison-Gower, a project scientist here at NASA Ames, and astronaut Shane Kimbrough, talking both about the cargo and science projects sent up to the International Space Station and the process of unpacking them. Well, we see like there's the both sides. There's like the people up at the space station working on, you know, receiving the cargo or even like science experiments, but then also on the flip side of how do you get that stuff prepared? That is a feat in of itself. That's true. So, Dennis, what do you have to do to uh, prepare stuff to go on uh, on cargo missions? Oh, that's that's a, a big <laughs> question because I mean, it really Start starts one to two years ahead of the launch. Really, um, if you think about it, or more because. You know, after you have an experiment defined, um, you know, you've got to prepare exactly what the science requirements are. Then you've got to start making a plan. Then you've got to start assessing what the hardware needs are and the kit's needs are. Um, Then you have to design those. Then they have to get through safety. You have to plan operations. You have to plan how everything's going to be labeled. And then usually I think somewhere between like three and six months before a launch is when we're going to actually have to like have things prepared, off-gassed, tested. HFIT, oh, label wow. committee, all those things, <laughs> um, and, and, and do the early load. And then we start preparing the late load chemicals and perishables that really have to be loaded 25 hours before launch. And we do that out at Kennedy Space Center for a SpaceX launch anyways. So, so there's kind of a whole experiment development cycle that wow. happens. And that's just for like one payload. And if we have, you know, five, six payloads from Ames coming out, it's a lot of work from a lot of people to send like a box or something. <laughs> and it, it, it takes a village for it. To yeah. <laughs> gathering all that stuff up. But I'm always curious, like on, on your guys' side, on Shane, for you guys, like when you receive this cargo, like how exactly does that happen or how does that work? Do you guys just, I mean, you're like, like you're unpacking the trunk from a trip, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, it's, yeah, we're always excited to uh, open up the hatch and uh, get new stuff. It's kind of like Christmas uh, every time we get one of these vehicles up there. But uh, the way we go about unpacking is very organized and, and it has to be that way. Uh, we have a great team on the ground that uh, gets us ready and prepared with all kind of documents and keeps us organized with charts and things on how they want it to be unpacked. And, uh, and so we follow that, you know, religiously. We'll have somebody, somebody in the crew is going to be called the load master, and that person's responsible for that vehicle. Uh, if we just start pulling things out and stowing things where we want to stow them, that's not the way it's going to be because we'll <laughs> never find that stuff. Um, so we really have to be disciplined and put things where they're supposed to go. Uh, a lot of times that means we'll take one bag out, and the bag will have 100 different items in it, and we have to go put those 100 things somewhere. So it's not as easy as pulling a bag out and stuffing it somewhere. Sometimes mm-hmm. it is, but most of the times it's not. So we've really got to, to uh, make sure that we're all helping each other out. And, and it's always better to, as I found with all these cargo ops, to do it as a team versus doing it individually. Um, you just you're much more efficient, and you can have one person kind of reading the book, keeping control of of everything, and the other couple people running things around, and uh, that that really really worked well for us. Lastly, we had a very cool conversation with Jack Boyd, senior advisor to the center director here at NASA Ames. Jack has 70 years of experience here. He arrived back in 1947 when Ames was a part of the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics and helping to lay the groundwork for modern aviation. In this conversation, Jack shares his advice for the next generation. 
if you're talking to someone who doesn't know anything about Ames, like what are the main things that you tell them? Well, I ask them if they've ever heard of supersonic speeds. Okay. And most of them haven't. What is supersonic speeds? And I explain, yeah. you know, mock mock waves, mock cones, sound barriers, yeah, et cetera, and how valuable it would be to get from point A to point B in one hour instead of five. <laughs> yeah, really. You know, flying from New York to London at in uh, Concord yeah. it was like two and a half hours. Oh, wow. And that takes you, what, seven or eight? Yeah. Uh, so to get around the world, and mm-hmm. the world is opening up, as they yeah. all understand, it's really valuable to do this kind of basic research. Otherwise, we have to depend on some other country yeah. to do this, and that doesn't turn them on at all. <laughs> so they love the idea of space. They don't know why quite, you know. Yeah. You talk about Mars, they, they think of little brown men. <laughs> talk yes. about, well, like Carl Sagan designed that plaque that we have mm-hmm. that we put on the Pioneer spacecraft. Okay. And he's made <clears throat> a little spacecraft called Pioneer back in the 70s. It went beyond Pluto. Mm-hmm. And Carl was uh, working with us, and he designed a plaque where he said, E.T. is out there. I firmly believe there's extraterrestrial life somewhere in the universe, and someday we'll find it. And if this pioneer is going to go beyond the solar system and it went beyond Pluto, Mm -hmm. I want to put something that would tell people what we're all about. So he designed this very interesting plaque, which has two human forms on it, for one thing. Mm-hmm. A male and a female, mm-hmm. and on the, it shows this solar system with the sun and nine planets. And yeah, this spacecraft comes from planet number three. <laughs> okay, and um, so you'll know one where we come from, and you'll know what we look like. And some smart person said, "Well, they'll think they look just like us, except we don't wear clothes." Have <laughs> you seen this plaque? Yeah, it's two nude humans. Yeah. <laughs> So considering your experience of the time have you seen NAC-8 at NASA and all the different range of like changes, what's kind of like the main advice that you give people who are coming in, you know, the next generation, new people getting hired in? You do two things. I'll yeah. do three things. One, listen to the older folks who are here because they really know what they're doing. Yeah. They've developed remarkable ability to, uh, what, build a new airplane or build a new spacecraft. Mm-hmm. Be sure you... Uh, Get along well with people because you have to depend on the people. There's no question about it. You've got to depend on people. So if you're a manager in particular, yeah. you better be able to get along with them and get along well. And two, don't be afraid to go out and learn something new, as I yeah. tend to do. If you want to, I want to be an engineer, that doesn't mean you can't learn about other things. So mm-hmm. do those three things and you'll probably get along pretty well. And that is it for 2017. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thank you all. We'll see you, or more accurately, you'll hear us in the new year. 